Chapter 2. The picture of our finish line determines how we run. Seeing where we are going. I want to start this chapter by asking us all this very important question. What is the picture of our finish line? We will run this race with Christ according to the revealed picture of the finish line we carry. When I say reveal picture, I mean the true conviction of what our heart sees and which our mind has been renewed to. True understanding and sight starts in the heart of man or the spirit and not the other way around as is so often taught. How was it that Abraham saw the day of Christ before Christ's day ever was? John 8 verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. How is it possible for Isaiah to see the glory of Christ before Christ ever was? John 12, 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. David spoke of the resurrection of Christ before Christ was ever resurrected. How is this possible? Acts 2, 31. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. How was it possible for these men to see all these things before they even happened? Because they were seeing in the spirit. They had eyes to see in the spiritual dimension, and this is to be our reality as his people. We are to be able to see the finish line. Helen Keller said, it's a terrible thing to see and have no vision. Plenty of Jesus' followers see in the physical, but how many of us have vision or sight of the spiritual dimension of God's word and everything contained within it? For many leaders and followers in the church, vision has just become something that we use to get a whole lot of people to do a task. Like in any running race, whether it be 100 meter sprint or a marathon, the person running will be prepared in such a way that aligns to the race they are in. Their physical training and dietary requirements will all be aligned to the particular race they are in. We must have a vision of the finish line if we are to run accurately and in alignment. A person who runs the 100 meters trains completely different to a person who runs a marathon. Their training routine is different. Their dietary intake will be different. The amount of food they need will be different. The exercise they do will be different. They prepare in accordance to the finish line they can see. There is no difference when it comes to the spiritual race that Paul said he was on and that he was training for. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. What is this prize that Paul speaks of that he is running to receive, and that he disciplines his body for, so he will not be disqualified from receiving this prize? What is the picture of his finish line? Being justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, or as some would say, being saved, is a gift and not a prize. So it becomes evident that Paul is not talking about being justified here. He is talking about something much bigger than this. And if he, like his hearers, doesn't discipline himself, then he runs the risk of not receiving the prize. Paul knows the prize he is running to receive because he can see it. 
This is what we are going to unpack in this chapter and how it's the literal picture of our finish line through the spiritual lens that empowers us to run in a way as to receive the prize. Knowing the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10 says, I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. If God declares the end from the beginning, then we need to receive a deeply rooted conviction of the end. Not just a head knowledge perspective of the end, but a spiritually revealed position where the mind has been renewed by the spirit so that this position is living and active. It is the power that comes from this living position that births Christ's life in us and has us living for him and his purposes wholeheartedly. Remember Ephesians 3, 14 to 20 from the previous chapter of knowing him? This power of the Spirit opens up and propels us into this incredible life in Christ, and this life is within us. It is this power that enables us to see the end from the beginning. As I mentioned previously, this is maybe why Paul said he was unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation. How do we start the journey well and on course if we don't have sight of where we are truly heading? If I wanted to drive to Auckland and yet didn't map out the true course of how to get there, I may never arrive in Auckland, or I may eventually arrive having worn myself out completely and exhausted every resource at my disposal in the process. I may have also burnt a number of bridges along the way. If others come with me on this journey, I am also leading them astray and into the pathway of frustration and ultimately disillusionment. It may take my entire lifetime to get to Auckland so that on arrival, I fall down dead. Although I arrived in Auckland, I never got to experience the life that was waiting for me in Auckland. Does any of this sound familiar in a spiritual context? In other words, knowing the end from the beginning that God has for us as his people determines how we will live our lives now. This revealed picture of the finish line determines what or who we truly love. The picture of the finish line determines the choices we will make in our lives now. The picture of our finish line will determine our priorities and whose will will be done. In other words, to truly walk in alignment with the Father and His purposes now, it's essential we have or are coming into a revealed understanding of the end or the big picture of the finish line in our hearts. Heavenly Calling Hebrews 3 verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Have we ever taken the time to ask God what this heavenly calling is that we are to be partakers of? Ephesians 1 verse 18 sees Paul praying for the church that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened so that we will know what is the hope of his calling. Once again, have we ever asked God what the hope of his calling is for the church? Colossians 3 verse 1 to 2 teaches us to keep seeking the things above and to set our minds on the things above and not on the earth. What does God want us to see that is above? What is it about what is above that determines the way we run and changes our life now? Colossians 3 1 to 2. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are of the earth. Once again, have we asked the why questions behind these passages? Did we pick up on where our mind is to be set and where it is not to be set? So much of the teaching by the church today is all about keeping our eyes on the earth. 
a large percentage of Christ's followers are firmly anchored and embedded in the world and all its ways of operating. We aspire to have a good life with the five steps to this and the five steps to that, how to have financial success and how to have a good earthly marriage, how to raise healthy kids and how to prosper in business. Are any of these things in and amongst themselves wrong? No, of course not. But viewed through the wrong lens, they can actually become a stumbling block and a hindrance to us becoming the people he longs for us to become, which is a people who are set apart for him. Paul also talks about pressing on toward the goal, the upward goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3 verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is the word prize again, and the prize is related to an upward call of God in Christ. Paul says he presses on so that he may lay hold of that for which he has been laid hold of for by Christ Jesus. Philippians verse 3.12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What is this upward call in Christ? Because it certainly isn't found in looking at the things of the earth. There is an overconsumption of books flooding us as his followers, all related to how to have a successful life on earth and very little on how to live with an eternal mindset and how that eternal mindset influences everything we are and do while we are here on earth. The most effective and influential followers of Jesus Christ in the spiritual realm are those who carry a living, revealed picture of the eternal realm because they know that this is what they are living for and not for the things of the earth. Why would God have us keep seeking the things above and setting our minds on the things above and not on the things of the earth where we live? What does he want us to see? Paul also said, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He says we are not to look at the things seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. How can Paul speak like this? How can he consider being whipped five times, stoned three times, shipwrecked, and persecuted by those he loves as mere light affliction? He can say this because of the picture of the finish line he carries in his heart. He has seen the things that are not seen. Even though being justified by the blood of Jesus Christ is amazing, and I am forever grateful for this, is this all that God has for us as his people? Or is this just the start of discovering the most incredible and powerful promise that God has in store for all those who wholeheartedly are in love with him? The Apostle Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 2.9 that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and heart has not yet received all that God has prepared for those who love him. In verse 10, he says that God has revealed these things, these prepared things to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. 
God reveals these mysteries to those who love him because it will be all those who genuinely love him who will search and seek out these mysteries that are contained in Christ. This reminds me of what the Apostle John wrote in relation to one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit, which is to guide the church into all truth. John writes that the Holy Spirit will disclose to us what is to come. John 16, 13 to 15. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. What are these things that are still to come that the Holy Spirit will reveal and disclose to all those who are hungry to know him? What is the hope of his calling? What is this heavenly calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What are these promises that the great people of faith didn't receive in their lifetime, but having seen them, welcomed them from a distance so as to receive them? To answer the questions that we have been posed here, I want to remind us that it is only a revealed understanding of the truth by the Holy Spirit that births life and transformation in us. Attempting to understand what is shared through the operating system of man or the flesh will create no life in us at all, and in fact may lead us into genuinely thinking and believing we have something, when in fact we don't. This will result in the puffing up of oneself, or can even lead us into a state of apathy. Either way, we are void of his life operating in us, which is the only posture or position that a true follower desires. Isaiah said that God declares the end from the beginning. So what is the end? The finish line. Have we ever taken the time to ask God why love is greater than all the following? For example, why is love greater than speaking in tongues like angels? Greater than prophesying and knowing of all the mysteries? Why is it greater than having all knowledge and faith? Greater than feeding the poor? and even greater than giving of our lives unto death. Have you ever asked yourself why the great commandment is to love God with everything you are and love others as you would love yourself? Have you ever asked why the new commandment Jesus gave Peter was to love one another as he loved us? Have you ever asked why Jesus prayed for oneness for his people just before his death when he could have prayed for a number of things? The answer to all these questions relates to the picture of the finish line that God has in store for all those who love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. The finishing picture is of the marriage between Christ and his church for eternity. Revelation 19, 7-9 Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. How many of us carry an actually deep-rooted conviction of this truth? How many of us have had this truth revealed in us by the power of the Holy Spirit deep within our spirits? How many of us are being transformed and are changing from the inside because of this truth? How many of us can say with all authenticity that we are living from this living reality of this truth in us? This is the measuring rod that you would want to measure yourself against in relation to whether you are genuinely in the life of this truth or not. 
Our very lives will be the evidence of this truth revealed in us. The true spiritual understanding of the bride of Christ in us will create so much life within us that we'll be overwhelmed by the rivers of life flowing from us. We will not be able to contain this life in us, and neither should we be able to. Jesus promised this Samaritan woman in John 4 that whoever drinks of the water that he gives would have within them a well of water springing up to eternal life. John 7, 37-38 promises us rivers of living water within us if we desire and believe that this reality is a possibility. You see, it's not whether you have heard about the Bride of Christ or whether you have an intellectual understanding of the Bride of Christ, but whether you carry a deeply rooted convictional position of the Bride of Christ that makes all the difference. For too long, the church of which I am part has been guilty of focusing on the wrong things because we have failed to see them from a divine perspective. We have made it all about the problem rather than the promise. Do we really believe our incredible God, the creator of the universe, and everything that is contained in him would start with a problem in mind rather than a promise? We see in Genesis 2 verse 6 God saying to man that he may eat freely from any tree of the garden, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. What do we observe from this passage of truth? God says to Adam he is free to eat from any tree in the garden. God doesn't start from the position we would start from. If that was me talking to Adam, I would have warned him first about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before I ever got talking about eating from any other tree. I would have made the problem so big that I probably wouldn't even have got round to looking at the promise of eating from all the other trees that have incredible life in them. I would have started with the danger and, of course, the consequences of eating from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than talk about the life that is found if I eat of any of the other trees. I would have started the conversation from a fear-based perspective rather than a faith one like God also does. I would have started with the problem and not the promise. Does any of this sound familiar? How much of our teaching and our focus is about getting the problem fixed, being justified from our sin, and then our mission becomes about this rather than our teaching and priorities being focused on what we need to know if we are to become the promise, his bride? and from this position live our lives and accomplish his purposes. I know five years ago I was focused on the problem rather than the promise, and by his love and mercy has led me on a spiritual journey of the heart to be able to see the promise that was given to me that day I was reconciled back to him. I just didn't know it. I see Paul talking about this great mystery called marriage in the book of Ephesians, where all of Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 refers to Christ and his church. Yet so much of our teaching in relation to this passage has been about the physical marriage between a man and a woman. Jesus and his bride. Ephesians 5.32 This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Human marriage is a foreshadow of something far greater, and yet for many followers of Jesus Christ, we have made marriage about us. Why? because we have failed to see the greater purpose of our human marriage covenants and have had marriage an end in itself, 
instead of it being a means towards a greater end. That is the church's marriage to Christ. We see in Ephesians 5.31 the words, A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Where does this reference come from? Is this the first time that the Bible mentions this truth? Is this truth only found in the New Testament? Or do we find this truth in the Old Testament? We find this truth in the first book of God's living word in chapter 2. Right at the start of the book, we find this truth. Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Why is the two to become one flesh when a marriage is about two people? The husband is to love his wife, and the wife is to submit or align herself to her husband. And in doing so, they are becoming one person. Who then is the second person now in this relationship? I'm not speaking from a physical context now, but a spiritual one. As a husband and wife become one in spirit through through God-given process of love and submission, and they both have their eyes fixed upon Christ and not one another, this process of transformation starts to occur and Christ becomes the other person in the marriage covenant. I wonder what Christian marriages would look like if more of us carried this revealed position of truth. I think we would be more committed to working out our differences and be devoted to the covenant we have committed to. Just imagine discipling our children into this reality of Christ as well. The process of becoming one with Christ and one another in the Spirit, the very thing that Jesus prayed in John 17, 20-23, has now begun. This is all in preparation for our marriage covenant with Christ in eternity and speaks to why there is no human physical marriage after the resurrection. Mark 12, 24 to 25. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marriage nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. It's important to know that we do not have to be married in the physical to become the spiritual bride of Christ. Marriage in the physical is only one of the environments that God uses as a means for this transformational work. If we are married, it is essential we understand this greater spiritual purpose for the marriage covenant so that it accomplishes its purpose. Failure to come into the spiritual understanding and purpose of the physical human marriage will limit and hinder the true work the Father wants to accomplish in and through you. We will find ourselves falling short of the position of spiritual oneness with Him and one another, that is the bridal position. I believe this is one of the reasons why Paul's first place position on marriage is not to get married. He says there is nothing wrong with marriage. But he warns us of the traps of marriage if we don't understand its true purpose and our spiritual transformation of oneness. 1 Corinthians 7, 29-35 But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess and those who use the world as they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, 
and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Paul is not saying if you are married and you don't like your marriage, go and get a divorce. He's saying if you are married and have become entangled with worldly affairs, then it's time to disentangle from these affairs and start living for him and the true purpose behind his design for marriage. This is why he then says that all those who are unmarried are focused and concerned about the things of the Lord and give the Lord undistracted devotion rather than getting caught up in all the pitfalls that marriage brings. If you are married today, are you caught up in all the pitfalls that marriage brings? The concerns of your husband or wife, the concerns of your children, the concerns of the world, or are you in a posture and position of undistracted devotion to the Lord? God desires and longs to see marriages where both the husband and the wife are in a position of undistracted devotion to the Lord, a position of spiritual oneness with him and one another. That is a marriage of life because it's his life in both the husband and wife that is present and evident. Now that's an environment to bring children into, isn't it? Paul is fully aware of the pitfalls that marriage can bring that lead us away from God and his purposes. Hence, he also speaks this passage to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 11, 2-3. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. As I mentioned earlier in chapter 1, this is an incredible passage of Scripture where Paul compares the falling away of mankind to us being led astray from the simplicity and purity of a devotion to Jesus. Can it get any bigger than this? I don't think it can. Paul is jealous for us in a godly way. This is a good kind of jealousy where he longs to present the church as a pure virgin, a wise virgin one that is spotless and blameless before him, one that has been transformed into his image because she entered into the bridal process of sanctification. A bride or people who have loved him, their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and those who are yet to come to know him with the same love that he has for them. The bride will love like the groom loves. This is why the greatest attribute in the kingdom, because it's the greatest test for God's people to love the way he does. This is only possible as we die to our lives, surrendering everything in our hearts that is not of him, and asking him to come and fill us with his spirit and truth, his word. Maybe we can now start to see why the great commandment is the great commandment. We will talk about this further in chapter 7. My prayer is that we will be humble enough and hungry enough to seek the revealed position of the bride of Christ and repent of anything the Lord will show us as we pursue a greater understanding of him. My hope is we will experience the life of this revealed position within us, causing us to be wholeheartedly devoted to him and his purposes. I have such a strong conviction that the two greatest revealed positions 
that a person can have and live from if they want to have a life that is wholeheartedly devoted and committed to God and his purposes are knowing him, our true purpose, and carrying a revealed picture of the finish line. This is why I've started with these two chapters in the book. The chapters that follow these two, I believe, empower and bring to life the reality that is declared in chapters one and two. Here are two statements that will define some of the next chapters that I write. Sometimes you have to go backwards so you can go forwards. And you cannot get a full appreciation of where you are and where you are going until you fully realize where you have come from. I know I have taken this beautiful country, New Zealand, for granted. And it has only been since I've traveled the world that I now have a true appreciation for this great nation. When you go to countries like India, Cambodia, Mexico, and the Philippines and taste and see what true poverty in the physical looks like, then and only then do you have a full appreciation for this country. I say all this to make my next point. To truly appreciate and come into the fullness of life in God within us, where our motivation for everything we are becoming and demonstrating comes from a position of love, then we need to carry a revealed position of who we were without Christ and what Christ has redeemed us from. As God reveals to us our fallen nature and our true state without him and what he has redeemed us from, then our innate response is to worship him with every fiber in our being. As we know, biblical worship is the laying down of our lives voluntarily for him and his will. Romans 12 verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I'm not sure how we have ever confused music and singing songs with true biblical worship, but I sense it has something to do with the fact that we don't really know him. It is fully possible to be consumed and filled to overflow with the most intense love and absolute appreciation for Christ because of the revealing of these positions. This is what chapter 4 will be about. The next chapter will declare how important it is that we understand our true state without Christ and the kingdom we have come from.